And let me start by telling you a parable of modern life that I came across a little while ago. Once upon a time there was a young girl whose parents took her to the shrine of the Golden Arches. There she saw the opportunity to buy a combination of food and a little toy that someone in a fit of marketing genius had called the Happy Meal. May I have it please, she asked her parents. I must have it. I don't think I can live without it. No, her parents told her. The toy uh, that you want is just a trivial thing that enables the meal to be priced far beyond its value. It's not in the budget. We can't do it. But you don't understand, she said. She knew that they wouldn't just be buying fries, McNuggets and a Kung Fu Panda toy. They would be buying happiness. She was convinced that uh, she had a little McVacuum in her soul, that her heart was restless and it would only find its rest in a McHappy Meal. And so she explained to them, I want that Happy Meal more than I have wanted anything in my life. And if I get it, I will never ask for anything again. Ever. No more complaining, no more demanding. If you give me that Happy Meal, I will be fully content for the rest of my life. Her parents decided that that seemed like a pretty good deal. And so they bought it. And it worked. She grew up to be a contented, grateful, joyful woman. She lived with serenity and grace. Her life in many ways was hard. There were many setbacks, many disappointments along the way. But she never complained, not once. She had gotten the Happy Meal. And she would think of it often as uh, times got hard. She would remember the Happy Meal and she would say, I remember that Happy Meal. What great joy I found in that Happy Meal. Just as I had predicted, it brought her lasting satisfaction. Now, does life ever work that way? Of course it doesn't. And you'd think after a while that kids would catch on, that that they'd realise that the, the, the trick, that Happy Meals never bring lasting satisfaction, that there's always another toy just around the corner, that they wouldn't be sucked in the next time. You'd think only a child would be that naive. Or maybe not. Maybe uh, as we get older we, we don't necessarily get any smarter. Maybe our Happy Meals just get more complicated and more expensive. You see, the fact is we are hungry, thirsty people. And not just physically, uh, we have a hunger of the soul, a thirst for satisfaction, for connection, for significance. We are made to long for these things. In short, we're made to worship. We're made for a life to have meaning and safety and not so much just in ourselves but in the love and purposes of another. We are made to worship another. We are made for God. And tonight as we open Deuteronomy together, we come to a call from God's word to remember the Lord amidst that longing, to remember the one, the only one, of whom worship will not destroy us. This long uh, book of Deuteronomy really contains three sermons, three speeches that that Moses gives God's people on the edge of the promised land. Forty years they've been wandering in the wilderness and they're just there, just on the edge. And just before they go in, he gives them these three sermons. Sermons to people who have experienced amazing grace from God's hand 
having been rescued out of slavery from Egypt, having seen their enemies defeated by God's hand in a single day at the, as the sea collapsed on top of them. It's a sermon to people living in the light of the greatest escape of all time. Forty years of knowing that God loved them enough to do that for them. Their old hands, old hands now on the edge of the promised land, now on the edge of possessing everything that God had ever promised them. They could see it. It was just over the rise. But it's also a sermon to us, those of us who have experienced a far more abundant grace than any the first hearers had. We too have been rescued from slavery, slavery to sin, slavery even to our own death. We too have seen our enemies defeated by God in a single day on the cross. It's a sermon to us from our God, to us who live in the light of the greatest escape of all time, knowing that God loved us enough to rescue us. We're old hands on the edge of the promised land, on the edge of heaven itself. And as people who are on the edge of that, what more could God do for us than what he has already done? This rescue from sin and from death. Well, here's the wonder for me of God's grace and the import of this book for us. You see, the rescue from Egypt, uh, even the rescue for us from sin and death, is only half the story of God's grace. The freedom from those things is only half the story. The other half, the half that this book shows us, is the freedom for, the freedom for worship. We are saved from slavery We are saved for worship, worship of the true and living God. So let me ask you as we enter Deuteronomy chapter 8 together, what do you think would drive you away from worshipping a God who has rescued you, a God who you know provides for your every need? What what could drag you away from him? The simple answer that Deuteronomy gives us here in chapter 8 is forgetfulness. We forget. Forgetfulness is what leads us to worship other things other than our God. We simply forget the Lord. You ever forgotten something really important in life? I was thinking about that this week and I came across uh, this story of a man who forgot his wife. A man was travelling by car in Italy with his wife and he left his wife at the petrol station Accidentally, and uh, realised only six hours later. <laughs> the incident had taken place in the resort town of Pizarro, uh, where the couple had stopped to, to fill up the tank on their way home. Having refuelled the car, the man drove away without noticing that his 30-year-old wife was not actually in the car with him. And so the woman eventually called the police, who found her husband some 340 kilometres away. The husband explained to police officers that he didn't notice that his wife was missing because she usually sits in the back. Now how is that even possible that you would forget your wife? Simple, the man said, she's in the back seat. Never notice her anyway. (laughs) And I I was thinking about that story, I was thinking that's exactly what the Bible is saying to us here in Deuteronomy 8. That is what we so easily do with the Lord. He's in the back seat. Our eyes are fixed, our minds are fixed on other things other than him. 
And Deuteronomy uh, chapter 7 uh, and then in chapter 8 gives us two ways, two things that take our eyes away from the Lord so that we would forget him. The first, and it's worth flicking back uh, to chapter 7, uh, verses 17 onwards. The first is that we end up looking ahead and looking around us with fear and with discontent. Moses says to them in Deuteronomy 7, 17, he says, You may say to yourselves, These nations are stronger than we are. How can we drive them out? And then turn your eyes down to verse 25. The images of their gods you are to burn in the fire. Do not covet the silver and the gold on them and do not take it for yourselves or you'll be ensnared by it. Forgetfulness comes to us uh, when we are afraid of something that's in front of us. When when things aren't turning out the way we planned, uh, when things feel out of our control, we stretch out and we put our hope in something that we think is going to fix it that's going to deal with that fear, that's going to give us security. But in the end, Deuteronomy 7.25 says, it ensnares us. And I think for us, this danger of looking ahead with fear is a real and present one for us. And you know you're falling under this fear, this this danger, when, when, for instance, at work, you find yourself bored and frustrated by your work. You expect your work to do far more for you than provide an income and be an occupation. This is where you get your identity and your purpose, your significance in life. And as you go on and as it fails to do that, as your career struggles under the weight of expectations you put on it, as it fails to deliver meaning and significance for you, then you start to look around with discontent. Or perhaps it's in relationships that this discontent grows. We find that the relationships uh, we have are disappointing, not nearly as joyful as we'd hoped. We find marriage is a struggle and we never imagined it would be that way. Or you find caring for your family as they struggle with ill health is just draining, very little back. It's easy to look around as these things come and resent those we relate to for not providing us with what we think we deserve or need from that relationship. Or perhaps the discontent comes with the relationships we don't have and think we need. It's easy for us uh, in the midst of life to become preoccupied with the question of our own happiness, constantly self-evaluating, constantly fearful that we're not content. Or how about your possessions? Are you ever fearful as you look around? Hard not to, I reckon. Especially at the moment. I was reading yesterday that the average value of houses in the UK has fallen by 13%. 13%, that is huge. How can you not feel discontent? Something that's completely out of your control. Someone has come along and they've sliced 13% off your value. It's hard not to look around and feel discontent and worse still the fear grows when you look around and everyone else seems 10 foot tall and bulletproof you hate your job and everyone else seems to love theirs your marriage is on its knees and everyone else is still in their honeymoon you see people come back from the latest jaunt in Spain tanned head to toe and you've got the tan that only a Yorkshire summer can provide 
Deuteronomy 7.25, their gods you are to burn in the fire. Do not cover the silver and gold on them and do not take it for yourselves or you will be ensnared by it. And let me say, you'll know you're ensnared when these troubles come at work or in relationships or to your health or even to the value of your house and you find your whole spirit shrinking because of it. You feel increasingly powerless and you find yourself gripping all the more tightly to the things you think are still within your grasp. You respond with a resentment and stinginess towards others, especially to those whose situation seems far more pleasant than your own. Moses says, don't look around with discontentment. Work, relationships, houses, health are all wonderful gifts from our God, but they make miserable gods. Deuteronomy 5, he says, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. But then there's the flip side. Have a look at chapter 8, verses 11 to 14. Moses says, be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God failing to observe his commands, his laws and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise when you eat and are satisfied and when you build fine houses and settle down and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God. And verse 17, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands has produced this wealth for me. Is that a picture of Western culture or what? Here in the UK uh, we have eaten our fill, we have built fine houses, our herds, our flocks, our gadgets, our plasma screens, our iPods, our clothes racks have multiplied. Our silver, our gold, our bank balances, our shares, our investments, all that we have has multiplied. And it's easy to say to ourselves as, as everyone does, you know what, I deserve this. My power, my work, my strength has produced this wealth. Whether it be uh, the the iPhone or or even the uh, the nearly paid off mortgage, as the credit crunch hits you, you think to yourself, no, with careful planning, I've been clever enough to avoid this credit crunch. Yeah, yeah, I'll ride out this financial storm and I'll come out the other side even richer. Verse 17 could be our theme song. And I reckon it would be even easy for us to do this as a church family. Easy to look around tonight and see a full church and think we're thriving, look at us. If you were here last week as we celebrated after the youth house party and we saw all that was going on with youth. We think about church plants and new staff and everything going on. It's easy to look back, especially those who have been here for many years and think we did this. We did it week in, week out. We worked hard, we gave lots and now we're enjoying the fruit of that. And our future plans, well, what can stop us? The strength of our hands has produced all this. Whenever we feel this way as a church or even individually, we need to imprint, burn onto our heart, verse 18. Remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And what does God say then to a people in danger like us of forgetting? Simple. I mean, what else would he say? You see it there in verse 18, but really it's all throughout the passage and all throughout this entire book. What do you say to someone who's forgotten? Remember. Remember. And he tells us to remember three things 
in this passage. The first thing we need to remember whenever we're in danger of forgetting is to remember that he rescued you. Have a look at the second half of verse 14 where he says, Don't forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And the people that Moses speaks to are, are some 40 years on from that great rescue. And for many of them listening on the plains of Moab, just on the edge of the promised land, either they, were, they weren't there, they were too young to be there 40 years ago or it's just a distant memory, something in the past. But Deuteronomy speaks of that rescue from Egypt directly and presently. It's not an event that happened some time ago to some other people. It's an event that directly affects this time and this people. And so it is to be with our rescue. The rescue through that death on a cross so many years ago, all of us were too young to be there. But you were there. Your sin was there. He was dying your death. He was defeating your enemies. You were there when they nailed him to the cross. You were there when they pierced his side. You were there when they laid his body in the tomb. In fact, if it wasn't for you, he wouldn't have been there. Do you remember that? Christian, do you remember what you were before he died for you? Do you remember? You were dead in your sin. Dead, dead, dead. In the words of the old Negro spiritual, sometimes it should cause you to tremble, tremble, tremble. And the problem for us is the time and the distance we put between our life now and the rescue then. We are called to remember the plight we are in. We are called to remember how powerless we were and to cast our mind over the sort of life that would have come if we had not been rescued. I was thinking about that this week and I remembered uh, Tony Bullimore, one of the famous sailors uh, from the United Kingdom who ventured down Australia way about uh, 10 years ago, 1997. Uh, he was in a round-the-world race and he, his boat capsized in the middle of nowhere. And it took an Australian naval vessel five days at full speed to reach him. It was an amazing rescue uh, watching the footage on television. Great cost, huge risk to rescue him. Amazing moment. I was looking at his uh, website this week and uh, the fascinating thing about it, when you look at the About Tony Bullimore section of it, he's become the hero of the hour. What a survivor. The chocolate, the way he rationed the chocolate, the, the, the water that he drank... And yeah, that is impressive, but without the rescue, he was dead. Now I see that he lines up for after-dinner speeches at great cost to tell you how to be a survivor in life. I've got to be honest, I look at the site and I think, you goose. (laughs) 2006, he capsized again off Australia. I reckon there's the same danger for us in the Christian life. Uh, When we fail to remember we were rescued, that that's why we're a Christian. In fact, that's why we progress as a Christian. That's why I grow. He's the rescuer. I'm not the hero of this story. The wonderful thing about the book of Deuteronomy, in its original name, it's not called Deuteronomy, they use the first words of, of the book and the words are God's words. This is God's story. It's not the story of a great people, it's the story of a great God. And so with us, he is the hero of our story. 
Remember you were rescued. Secondly, remember that he leads you. I put on the outlines there, remember that he provides you, but it's bigger than that. Have a look at verse 2 of chapter 8. It says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years. Moses called upon God's people to remember that the life that they had experienced these 40 years in the desert was a life that had been led by God all the way to the promised land. And we're meant to remember that too. As God's people on the edge of the fulfilment of that promised land, on the edge of heaven itself, we need to know that we living this side of heaven, we are living a life led by God. And so Moses says, you need to remember where that journey has taken place. It's the desert. It's the wilderness. This isn't the promised land. This isn't your home. And there could be no greater contrast between the desert and the land that they were soon to possess. The land described in verses 7 to 9 so brilliantly for us in this passage compared to the land they're in now in verse 15, a dreadful land. This is crucial for us to hear, to remember where you live, the desert. This is not your home. You're on the way home but this ain't it. And Mark Driscoll, uh, one of the, uh, the more potent voices in modern uh, Christianity, was in Sydney recently and uh, speaking to a large group of Christians, he said this. He said, My fear for many of you is that Sydney is a good enough heaven. It's beautiful, it's secure, safe, fun, alive, entertaining, throbbing with people, getting homesick. And he says, I wonder if for many, Sydney is not a good enough heaven. I reckon it's the same here. Leafy forward, Peak District just around the corner, so much. This is almost good enough, isn't it? Moses says, remember where you are. This is not your home. And not only that, remember why he has led you through the wilderness. Again, verse 2 to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart. God uses life this side of heaven. He uses the wilderness before the promised land to humble us and to change us. And have a look in the passage what tools he uses to humble us and to totally reshape our hearts. It's the nitty-gritty of life. It's food in verse 3. It's drink in verse 15. It's clothes in verse 4. It's even our feet In verse 4, he uses all of life from what we eat to how you feel at the end of the day, how how swollen your feet are. He uses these humble tools to humble us. He leads us so that we grow dependent on him for everything, to teach us that, that the very props of our life, the things that we think hold us together, the very basics of life are not what hold us up at all. It's the God who provides all those things. He tests us. He disciplines us. So we learn to hunger not just for these things but for real food, to hunger for him. And so brothers and sisters, know that God is using the details of your life to lead you, to teach you and to change your heart. And so let me say that that's going to mean that you shouldn't expect that life in the wilderness will be one long picnic after another. It won't always be safe or comfortable or easy or healthy or plentiful. 
Don't assume those things and don't even assume that they're ideal for you. But do expect this. As verse 15 and 16 says, expect that throughout whatever life does throw at you, expect God's miraculous provision and protection. Know that whatever comes, his grace will be sufficient for you, that he will provide everything you need and he will lead you home because he has promised it. And thirdly, remember this. Remember that he is committed to your good. Have a look at verse 16. He humbled you and tested you so that in the end it might go well with you. Do you believe that of your God? That the life he leads you through on the way to heaven is the life he gives you because he is committed to your good. That he's your father. That he's humbling you and testing you because he loves you and he cares for you. And so we who are on the edge of heaven but still living in the desert need to know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Remember that he is committed to your good, your greatest good, being fit for heaven. That is the good he is working in all things towards. That is the good he will give you all things you need for, that you be fit for heaven. Let me leave you with uh, three final things about how to remember. You see, all this talk of uh, forgetting and and remembering, the problem is that we can be tricked into thinking it's all a a battle of the mind. I've just got to remember it like I remember my PIN number or my phone number. But the remembering that the Bible's talking about here is an act of head, heart, hands. It's a whole life thing. Let me leave you with three quick ways and we're going to deal with these more next week that you need to actively remember the Lord. The first is in verse 1. If you're going to remember the Lord, you need to trust that his word is where life is found. Trust that his word is where life is found. If you want to avoid the snares of fear and pride, heed his word. Take great care to hear it and obey it. For it's in listening to and obeying his voice, the Bible says, that life is found. Let this be a year where you take great care to listen and obey him. And let me just say as an aside, uh, as a warning, let me say that I, I don't want to hear any more people say to me or to say to a brother or sister in Christ that all we ever talk about is the Bible and I just want to get on and love and, and live and we need to be talking about those things. We're not scholars. Enough of the Bible. Let's get on with it. Well, if I hear that sentiment again, what I'm going to do is I'm going to round up everybody who thinks that way and I'm going to knock your heads together. And if you're bigger than me, I'll get you to knock each other's heads together. If you want to love, if you want to live, if you want to care for each other, comfort each other, change each other, then realise where that change comes from. It's not from a human talk fest, but from the word that created heavens and earth, from the word that is sharper than any double-edged sword, the word that divides our bone and marrow, that gets to the heart of things. Trust that his word is where life is found. And secondly, walk in the ways of your Lord. Verse 6. Trust his ways are where blessing is found. Trust his ways lead you home. And know that the more you walk in his ways, the more you will be visibly and concretely different to those around you. That while it may seem to you that you walk the same path as your contemporaries, 
There are actually many forks along that path. Many times where you are called to remember the Lord, to choose his way and not man's. To revere God and not fear man. To make clear to all those around you that you remember you are rescued. You remember you are led by him and that he is utterly committed to your good. And finally, and I'll leave you with this, as we live in the desert, as we wait for home, live a life of praise. If you want to remember your God, then spend time praising him. I was thinking about that in, uh, when I heard that news about the, the housing prices uh, this week, 13%. It is going to be a time in the next year where, where many people feel a great deal of fear and, and it will bite many here as well. And these are the words that came to my mind, the words of Habakkuk 3, and I'll leave them with you. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive, oil, olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, and though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. Let's pray.